Torah Resource presents the Rob and Caleb Show. All aboard! And now, from two sides of the same state, here they are, Rob and Caleb. What up? And shalom. Welcome to the Rob and Caleb Show. My name... Is Caleb Hag with me, as always, as Rob Van Hoff. Oh, what up, Hoff? What up, loudmouth? How's it going, brother? It's awesome. Hey, man, what show? Tell me again, what show number are we on here? We are on show number ninety-five. Yes. And I cannot believe that we are still coming up with content <laughs> <laughs> for this podcast. Yes, the lowly podcast of the mystery of the Rob and Caleb Show. I think that we should, uh, somebody said that we should change our name to The Mystery of the Robin Caleb Show instead of just The Robin Caleb Show. What well, do you think? Well, it was a shimmy tie year. <laughs> uh, well, it is true that people tend to sell a lot more when, when they add the, uh, when they add the, the word mystery onto it. I wish I had some kind of a clip. Or here, here's the top, yeah, it's like any any title that has like, Jewish Jewishness of Jesus, or um, these kind of things, man. Those book, the books are guaranteed to sell. Doesn't the, matter what's in the the, the, the mystery of the Robin Caleb show. <laughs> that's not. Was, that's more dreamy. We need like that. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the only thing I have, I mean, I don't have. Yeah, I, the only thing I have is like. Uh, like Middle Eastern, like I got spro- I, I got the Sprox. Yeah, I know. I well, I don't got it. I'm sorry. I apologize. We'll just have to, you know, go without it today. Anyway, okay. Welcome everyone. What up and shalom to everybody out there in Radio Land in Podcastville. Uh, we're excited. Or we to, say PCV. Yeah, we're excited that not you- to be confused with PVC. Wow, the bad jokes abound already. Um, we're we're very happy that you are listening to our show. What up and shalom to everybody in the chat room. There isn't a whole lot of people today. We're, we're dropping numbers. Oh well, we scared some people away. Yeah, well, maybe last last week with our uh, with our showtime change, people, you know, we we lost five out of the thirty two. We, we listeners. had a couple thirty six listeners. I on Shabbat. I think there's a couple that came visit that might not be coming back. <laughs> that happens a lot to us. Why? What's going on? Well, they they come to they had come and visit us like a year and a half ago or so, and what the gal was like. Did you tell them that you didn't think Con no, was well, a prophet? Here, no, Pri- Prince Charles. Oh no, Antichrist because his name adds up to six 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 in some sort of code. And check this out. Speaking of Prince, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me finish. And that, this is what she said, Eddie Chumney is the best teacher in the world. <laughs> and we would, we would normally be down in uh, Oklahoma with, no, wait, wait a minute. Oh, and I, I, this is, I'm not bashing anybody. I'm just saying this is literally what she said on Shabbat, right? We do not get a lot of humor here, and when we do, it's wonderful. <laughs> So then she said, "This is Shabbat morning." I'm like, <laughs> greet, I'm like, gre- I'm greeting people, 
and I'm getting ready. The first thing she says is this. Well, Eddie Chimney is the best Messianic teacher in the world. Did you laugh? And she said, well, I was listening, and she said, uh, then she followed that with, we would, we would normally be in Oklahoma right now be, uh, with Monty Judah, but um, I was afraid because of what's going on in the Middle East, I didn't think we'd ever make it back to Spokane. All right, you heard that. <laughs> so I said, and she says, I, she said, finally, I study prophecy all day and half the night. And I said, oh, so you know, you've learned Hebrew? Well, she's, and for years she's done. And I said, so you know Hebrew? No. And I said, oh, you need to learn Hebrew so you can read the, read, actually read the prophecies, you know, in Hebrew. Why would she I, do I, that? I had to go get she ready. Has, you know, I couldn't sit there and talk. She has Anyways, Monty Judah interpret all that for her, right? So in my message, after <laughs> yeah, we, you, you, <laughs> I know I where started, this is going. I, I drilled into the uh, blood moons into all the stuff prophecy i didn't mention anybody name by name but i talked about people who have preached big things and what happened back in the 90s and all this kind of stuff and i said you know we can't sustain our body messiah is not sustained on on uh, this sensationalism we need substance we need substance not this chasing after all these vision stuff anyway it offended it offended her of course and then someone talked to her too about uh Monty Judah and, and stuff that he said, and they, they got up and left. Okay, so. So, anyway, I scaring people away when I said it. Uh, I think I think I have speaking, that in my track Speaking record. of Monty Judah here, okay, last week I asked for people to try, anybody who had a hard copy of the 1996 February Yova or Yavo newsletter. Yeah, it's Hebrew, he will come. Yeah, Yavo. Uh, to please uh, make a copy of it and send it to me. No one has done so. However, I have gotten some gems. Um, this all from our good friend, Spiros Basaris, who has made the series uh, uh, Our Created Solar System. <clears throat> Pardon me. It's still it's still being created. He's he's uh, putting together number three right now. Anyway, he's, he uh, gave me these. Now, this doesn't date back as far as I wanted it to, but your comment about Prince Charles brought this to mind, and luckily I had it right next to my desk. So these are Yavo newsletters from 1990. Let's see here, 98 and 99. This is the one where he says that, uh, that uh, well, he references what he said in the 96 newsletter. He also claims that Prince Charles is the Antichrist and that God told him that. And, uh, I mean, all <laughs> sorts of stuff. I mean, this stuff is gold. Did you know that, yeah, did yeah. You know that he uh, basically has erased everything from the Internet possible, tying him back to his original prophecy and will not produce the, the 96 Yavo newsletter? Yeah, he, he might <clears throat> Yeah, who knows, man. Guy is a this snake. Is- Snake okay. in the grass. Okay, let's move on. Uh, anyway, I you know I, we haven't even gotten the the formalities out of the way yet. We're already seven minutes into the show. Uh, the Robin Caleb Show is wonderfully brought to you by TorahResource dot com. Go to TorahResource dot com to find all sorts of free articles and different resources that you can buy that will guide you in your studies of all things Bible. That's right. We even have some stuff on prophecy. You can find my father's uh, series on the book of Daniel and how to interpret biblical prophecy. See, so we're not against uh, people talking about prophecy. Uh, it might sound like it because we're constantly talking against people who are predicting things. But uh, yeah, anyway, so uh, at our programming desk, as always, is 
Gary Springer. And welcome back to Gary Springer, who just got back from Arizona. And then also running our websites is Mark Randall, who's not in the chat room today. He told me he would not be, but that's okay. And then, of course, uh, our chat room. Thank you to everyone who comes into the chat room. You can find our chat room by going to trradio.com. Up in the toolbar, hover over broadcast, go down to RC Show, click on that. And then down in the right-hand corner, you're going to see something that says chat room. Join us in the chat room. You can also sign up for show notes, which I sent out today, believe it or not. Okay, so you might be asking yourself, hey, what are the guys going to talk about today? And the answer is we're going to talk about movies. Uh, maybe I should have something queued up. Do we have a let's go to the movies club? Well, you know, I was thinking about that, but uh, I, I don't have anything like that. So let's let's try this again. We're going to talk about movies. That's all I got. Um, okay, so basically this is how this happens. Uh, Rob <laughs> text messaged me early in the morning and said, hey, have you seen this movie, Killing Jesus? Now, full disclosure here, full disclosure, I really do not like Bill O'Reilly. Okay? I don't like him as a... Uh, <laughs> a so-called historian, which I don't believe he is because he seems to get much of his history wrong. Um, I don't like him as a political, uh, what, reviewer? What would you call Bill O'Reilly? A guy who talks about politics? Cause he's, I, a, he's a what he's an idiot. An opinion. He's an opinion guy. I shouldn't call him an idiot. I, I apologize. I don't think he's an idiot. I mean, I, I, I think I, he's... I think that he is unfair in his bias most of the time. Which uh, which offends me as a as a listener and as a believer. Honestly, yeah, he's got it. Uh, but, yeah, but I don't know. In the popular news like that, everybody's got an agenda. I, I do. I think maybe I'm. I think you're absolutely right about that. Anyway, the point is is that I'm not a fan of Bill O'Reilly. So full disclosure there. However, he has done this New York Times bestseller book series uh, on killing. <laughs> I mean, killing insert name here. Uh, I believe the most recent one that just came out is killing, killing Reagan. That would be an interesting one to read, I'm sure. Um, so uh, he's also done killing Lincoln, uh, killing Kennedy, and killing Jesus, among he knows others. How to, he's, mar- he's marketing ideas. He's got a, he's got a market with that killing kind of title. He's building a name, kind of a name. Basically, himself. what the series does is it talks about the assassination attempts and or complete assassinations of different key figures in history. Uh, for instance, like I already said, Kennedy or uh, Reagan was, a, was an attempt that did not, uh, did not actually go through. Uh, however, Reagan was shot. Uh, anyway, so uh, he did one on killing Jesus as well. So Rob watches this uh, this movie, Killing Jesus, and um, he said, "You got to watch this." Well, so yeah, the movie the it was a book first, and then my understanding is that they took the book pretty much as it was and, and transferred it to a, sc- a screenplay. I don't know. So that, since I haven't looked at the book at all, the, the comments I want to share are specific to the movie, not to the book. To be fair, but on the on the flip side, Bill O'Reilly did produce the movie, and I think it was Ridley Scott of like Blade Runner fame and other movie. I think Gladiator. I think who's done all these other movies like that. He actually directed it. 
Yeah, so um, I decided instead of watching that movie, which I actually did, I watched, I don't know, the first 10, 15 minutes of Killing Jesus, and I did that right before we came on the air. So I started watching that at like 9 o'clock. Um, <laughs> instead of watching that, what did I do? I decided to watch a different movie. There's a movie on Netflix that you can watch now on Netflix. And you can watch both these movies by going to YouTube and typing in the name of these movies. They will come up. Uh, I, I did not include those links in the show notes just because I know that they are pirated movies and uh, as to not promote the pirating of copywritten material, I decided not to put the links to those pirated movies in the show notes. But you can find them on YouTube if you'd like to. However, if you have a Netflix account, which everyone should, uh, then you probably, uh, then you do have access to the movie I watched, which is called Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus. And so we're going to, I wish I had some intro music. If I would have, um, you know, if I would have been a little bit more on the ball this, this week, I would have, but you know, we, once again, and maybe we should, before we get into our movie reviews, maybe we should talk about, uh, what just ended Sukkot. We had Sukkot and then, uh, Shemini right? Which was, uh. The, the eighth day that and many people think that you stay in the sukkah for eight days. I don't actually read it like that. I, bl- I read the Torah portion that you're supposed to sit or dwell in the sukkah for seven days. And the eighth day, you're not supposed to or not. Not that there'd be anything wrong with that. But you come out of the sukkah on the end of the seventh day and Shemini and Sarah, it happens. Like if you're really camping in your in your tent and don't have running water or anything, then, you know, all of a sudden, boom, eighth day, it's like you get a shower again. There you go. <laughs> right? Uh, anyway, how was your Sukkot, Rob? It was great. It, we had a we had a great Sukkot. We built the Sukkah here at our house. It we, it was so windy, and our Sukkah was as pretty as it was. It was pretty frail, so we didn't spend as much time. I kind of it's mostly torn down now. Uh, you know, there's kind of this ritual. Like it's like you start building your Sukkah, and you're like, wow. It's like it's been a whole year. I remember it's like I've been in this eternal moment of building a sukkah. And then it's the same thing, taking it down. It's like, oh, I remember taking it down. So, but I was kind of feeling, I'm like, Lord, I just, I feel like I didn't, there were so many things going on. I feel like I didn't really spend time, I didn't stay any nights out there. We went with a smaller one this year than we have the last couple of years. But anyway, um, there's a lesson every year. We, we got through the first two chapter two and a half chapters we went we went through chapter one two and uh half of chapter three of kohelet uh reading it in hebrew and, and going very very slowly through it had great bible studies around that theme people really were edified uh, you know it's great Great, great, great. Yeah, you know, I was going to sleep in my in my, in my tent. I was going to bring a tent out and put it next to the sukkah and then sleep in my sukkah with my three-year-old child. But, you know, he's not quite there yet. He was excited to sleep outside. You know, like I kept saying, you want to sleep, sleep outside? You know, you want to sleep outside in the tent? He kept saying, yeah, let's do that. But then I knew what was going to happen. We were, you know, we were going to get out there. He was going to lay down for about a minute and a half. And then he was going to say, I want to go inside with mom. So I, so I decided maybe next year we'll bring out the tent uh, and, and actually sleep out there. Uh, we actually did not spend a whole lot of time in our sukkah, unfortunately. I did b- build the fire pit next to the sukkah, which was nice. But uh, we spent a lot of time going to other people's sukkahs throughout the week. And uh, that, was, that was good. It was good. We, uh, we had a lot of fun. 
play, you know, played games, ate way too much junk food. <laughs> and that's really what, you know, Sukkot is all about for us is just eating a ton of junk food. Uh, you know, no, no diet can be had during Sukkot, uh, unfortunately. Okay, let's move on to our movie. So you want to do your movie first or mine? You want to review yours or mine first? Let's do let's do mine first. Okay. Um, so because I think it'll go quick, and then we'll we'll move over. Okay. So the the one thing that I will say about this is that I noticed that there was a decent uh, cast. Kelsey Grammer uh, plays Herod, right? Plays Herod, yeah. And the guy who plays Gimli <laughs> on Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Well, actually, uh, hang on just a sec. Let's uh, let's let me it's, uh, let, let me look up on Google who's actually in this. Uh, let's yeah. see here. Let's get some Google music going here while I do that. You can Google it. Okay, so let's go here to IMDb. IMDb. And now let's look up. Benjamin Netanyahu never knew that this one clip became part of our <laughs> right. regular. Uh, you could Google it. You can Google it. Um, okay, so, and uh, what's it called? Killing, yes, that's what I'm looking for. Killing yes. Jesus. And uh, so the other person that I noticed who is actually quite a big name was, oh, Rufus, uh, I don't know how to say his last name, Rufus Sewell, Sewell, I don't know, Sewell. he's yeah. he's, uh, yeah. he's very famous, and then also John Rise da- Davies. Yeah, yeah, that's the guy who plays Gimli. Yeah. Yeah. I he, mean, who would have thought? He plays like one of the uh, high priests or something. I'm not going to lie to you, when I first started the movie, now I haven't seen the whole thing, so th- I, this is just my initial take. It starts out with Kelsey Grammer. I didn't realize it was Kelsey Grammer in the very beginning, and it's and it's Herod having it's like Frazier. Yeah, it's it's well, you know, it's Frazier. Frazier with hair, long like, hair. No, you're yeah. Frazier. Sorry. Yeah. So, uh, but you know, he, he's done a lot of stage acting in his life, and when 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 it first started out, I didn't realize it was Kelsey Grammer, and I thought to myself, this guy is way overacting. It's like he's trying to do theater, but he's yeah. doing it on the big screen. And it's way overacting for for the big screen. And then I realized, oh, it's Kelsey Grammer. Like this should be really good acting, but but no, it it. It's he's like one of the X Men too, or something. Yes, he is. Of course, he's it's Beast. Just, it, it's like, man, it's like this guy's versatile. But yeah, but then he dies at the like the he's like he's the main character at the very beginning, and then he dies. Well, way to spoil it for everyone, Rob. No, well, everybody knows Herod dies. <laughs> Sorry. I do Sorry, have to. I do alert. have to say that Rufus Sewell or what Sewell. I don't know how to say his name. I, Rufus. Uh, his acting is always superb. I really like him as an actor. Yeah, he does a good job. Anyway, so so this movie, for those who might not know, uh, was based on the book by Bill O'Reilly, as we already said. Bill O'Reilly is one of the executive producers of this, which basically means nothing. It, all it means is is that. Uh, is is that uh, Bill O'Reilly gave a substantial amount of money to try to make this movie happen. But, but here's the thing. Bill O'Reilly is priding himself because he was like a history teacher on historical accuracy. <laughs> that's that's and so that's the uh, the 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 plumb line here that we're going to use the the straight edge that I want to use is his claim for historical accuracy and by revealing and bringing to the public with his killing series series books some sort of historical truth that the has gone un you know documented within popular understandings of history of like Kennedy, Lincoln, Reagan, etc. He's so missed now, the mark on this one. 
So killing Jesus, the, the standard of judgment here is not that it's Bill O'Reilly. It's the claim to, his, to uh, providing the American or English-speaking audience with historical accuracy. Speaking that's, of, that's the claim that we are, that my comments are going to be uh, up against. Speaking of English-speaking audience, for all of the uh, major Hollywood producers that listen to this show, just take a cue from me here, okay? Can somebody please make a New Testament adaptation movie with actors that don't have horribly fake English accents? Just get away. Who, okay, wait a minute. What do you the guy who played Jesus? Well, we'll hear. Oh, wait, wait, hang on. Wait, 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 wait. Just, just, just to speak to that for just a second. Did you see all the articles and the reviews that this guy, the guy who plays Jesus, is a Muslim? And and, no. and this this was like some huge controversy for all these Christians. I, I never even looked at that. Uh, I mean, first of all, I don't know what Kelsey Grammer's uh, religious beliefs are, but are you are you He's actually, Christian scientist? Okay, so are you actually telling me that every person who's going to be in a movie, uh, uh, you know, a New Testament movie, is going to have to has to have faith in in one way or the other? I mean, you don't. Actors are actors. They have a job to do. They they do their job. I think it's absolutely asinine to to get upset. That a actor playing a role is uh, of a particular religion. I mean, honestly, the guy could have been a Satanist as long as he's doing the, his job and uh, you know portrays the character correctly. I don't understand what the big deal is. Am I off on that? No, I think people are touchy because it's you're you're poking at their religion, which is the tender part of their heart. Yeah, right? but I but mean, you're, you're okay. You're, maybe maybe a Satanist is is too far. But in terms of Islam. The New Testament supposedly is taken as one of their holy books, right? Now, I know there are problems with that. Don't get me wrong here. Don't misinterpret what I'm saying. All I'm saying is is that Jesus is a figure in their religion as well. So, you know, why would why would that make any difference? Okay, anyway. So you have a clip you want us to to listen to. Well, first, yeah, so what the point is here and just a few things. I I would encourage people to watch it if it's available. What was your uh, overall arching idea of the movie when but, it was done? But look at it as, like a, a friend of mine says, Bible trivia. Look at it as Bible trivia. Like you're going to say, oh, <laughs> you know, help you sharpen <laughs> actually said. But uh, <laughs> overall takeaway is that <laughs> the, here's the picture. The picture of, of Jesus that is painted is a of a, a person who doesn't know really what's happening. That's what it's I like, got from it too. It's like the pick. It's like he's swept away into this um, uh, movement. That it's the crowd that he's riding on, kind of just the waves of the masses, or not masses, but a lot of people that are encouraging him. Oh, you're the Messiah, and he's kind of just it's all happening to him, and he kind of just goes along for the ride. Actually, it's funny you say that because I watched up until the part where he's actually like telling Peter and a couple of the other uh, other disciples like, "Hey, come and follow me." But it's not like, "Hey, I'm the Messiah, come follow me." He's it's like he's questioning it. He's yeah, like, like, he's uh, like uh, c- "Come, I think come, to, I think yeah, something's happening. Come and, follow me." I I think uh, uh, I think yeah. And like for example, he's out in the fishing boat with Peter. They're out in the Sea of Galilee, presumably. <laughs> And, I pray. And Peter's frustrated because there's no fish. And so they say, well, let's pray. And Jesus is with him, and they pray. And all of a sudden, the water's bubbling, and then there's just the net is full of fish. And I'm like, okay, okay. 
this is crazy. Uh, but anyway, hang on, wait, 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 wait. Do you think? I mean, how many people out there? And maybe somebody in the chat room. Well, we only got like, man, we only got three people that don't actually work for Torah Resource in the chat room <laughs> That's right all now. Right. Uh, but one of you three, do you actually think that uh, that Yeshua didn't realize he was the Messiah by the time he was, you know, in his thirties? I think by the time he was five, he got it. When he's debating yeah. with the with the uh, with the sages in the temple, that's when he was twelve. But twelve, anyway. whatever. Um, here's here's the thing too. They have Yeshua's prayer life in this movie. Yeshua's prayer life because it shows him in his prayer life is overcoming the urge to wreak vengeance. That it's it's controlling his anger. That's the motivator. For example. When he hears that John the Baptist has been beheaded, he gets angry and he he wants to go and like, presumably like, retaliate with physical violence. But he has to go pray and like simmer down. And then some some other thing happens. He sees some other atrocity, and it's like it's his prayer life that is tempering this passion because he and the whole time is no. We got to be forgiving, and so the whole temptation sequence—or not, pardon me, not temptation—the whole passion sequence of Yeshua's being mocked, and whipped, and beaten—is this taunting, saying, "Come on, be angry, curse at me," like trying to get him to respond out of anger, and he refuses. He's like, "No, I, I, I love you. I seek forgiveness the whole time." And, oh, come on, and they're trying to get a, re- an action, a reaction out of him. And so his prayer life is all about him subduing this anger that is there, but he's, he's going to overcome it. There's a good theological question for you, though, Rob. You think that Yeshua had righteous anger? Yeah, yeah, I think he did. I think he knocked over the, the money changers. And, so, I mean, yeah. he got upset, right? Yeah, but, the, but they really made that the point of, but here, here was another thing. One of the key scenes in the movie is where they take, all these people take this this woman, they say she was an adulteress caught in the act, out and they put her in a, a hole and they're going to all stone her. And she gets he gets down in the hole with her and he says, you know, he's saying, they're like, are you saying we should not do the law of Moses? And then he makes his famous statement there, you know, Whoever is without sin among you, you cast the first stone. And then the, you have these two guys who are at the front of the line with the stones, and they're looking at each other like, you go first. No, you go first. No, you go first. And then the other guy, I can't do it. And the other guy, I can't do it either. Well, if you can't, I can't. And then they, they all walk away. But my point is this. Why would that, if he's trying to reconstruct from a historian's perspective, A, a sto- the story of Jesus, why would he include that story? Yes, especially seeing because as though textually, that, textually because yeah. it, what a historian is going to do is going to say, look at our oldest text, and it seems like the, the oldest versions of John didn't have that story, or that, that oral tradition was attached in John once and somewhere else in Luke. So it was this event that you'd think from a, someone who just wanted to be historical, they might leave that out. But my favorite one, when it comes to historical blob uh, bloopers, is the clip here. Um, and I want to, just to poke a little fun at Bill O'Reilly, can we play the other clip first? The so, clip from Taya. Uh, Taya Kyle. Here Kyle. we go. 
You're a Christian woman, uh, and you you know wear the cross proudly around your neck. Mm -hmm. Did did you talk about forgiveness in that? Because I don't know if I could. Boy, you know, you have to. Our religion dictates that so we have to forgive. Right. Um, I always say, well, you know, the person has to ask for forgiveness. I maybe I'm on the wrong side of that. But have you explained that or talked about that with the kids? We have. We've had some really deep conversations about that. And I actually had a deep conversation with my pastor about it on a different issue. And um, just respecting the time that we have here, there is a story in the Bible where, um, you know, there were some Jews that God sent into a cave. They, they decided to do their own thing, not listen to God. They walked for 40 years. And they said, God, you know, please forgive me. And he said, my child, I forgave you the moment you did it. But that doesn't mean you can go back into the That's game. right. You have to. There's always have to be. In this, <laughs> there's a consequence. This... I love. I love Bill O'Reilly. Yeah, that's right. No, that's okay, not so, right. So, he, we've, we're kind of picking on him, and it's fine. You know, he's a public figure. He puts himself out there. Hang on, just so a second. Is... So, okay, did you? Okay, well, I'll copy this. Well, maybe we'll, maybe we'll grab this in just a second. Go ahead, keep going. Okay, so that so that was. Uh, the wife, the widow of of uh, the sniper, American sniper guy. Well, yeah, but they, but but none of that really matters. Look, the, the, no, point, the point is the history. The, the point is that the, there's so many flaws a, in that clip, and and yeah. O'Reilly's just like, yep, that's right, exactly. So it this this to contextualize, we have other data points concerning this guy and Bible history. But so now play this <laughs> this other clip. This is from the movie. This is Jesus talking to to who we find out later is both Nicodemus and Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. We don't know that's who they are at this point, but we know they're Pharisees because of the way they dress. I'm told of a great rabbi who was asked to recite the Torah while standing on one leg. <laughs> he said, do not unto others as you would not have them do unto you. This is the true wisdom of the Torah. But this is all commentary. Go and learn it. So, okay, hang on. Now, I haven't heard this clip before. Let me see if I, I know where you're going with this. Well, should we even... Okay, I think I should possibly tell you where I'm coming from with the Mishnah. I think the Mishnah, 3rd, 4th century, is, is predominantly response to Christianity. <clears throat> Trying to preserve uh, Judaism, but also a response to Christianity. I think that they attribute things to people... Uh, that are simply not true. For instance, the idea that Hillel actually said that th this quote, don't do unto others as you wouldn't have them do, do unto you. And then the idea that Yeshua comes along, takes Hillel's uh, quote and reverses it and makes it into the positive. I think that's nonsense. I don't think there's any textual evidence that Hillel said it before Yeshua. I think Yeshua said it and 250 years later, the Jewish people said, "Oh, oh yeah. Well, Halal said it first. Well, here's here, it's this is not even Mishnah. This is only in the Babylonian Talmud. So this is six hundred years later. This is w way later, and it is. You're right, Kill. This is attributed to Halal, but this is this is like historians, you know. To yeah, these are the people who are composing the Babylonian Talmud have never been to the land of Israel. You know, They're, they've never." Um, that they, they don't have any. They weren't around when the temple was there. They they're exposed to Christians and Zoroastrians and things like this. And they're trying to, like you said, they're trying to fortify their vision of of what uh, covenant faithfulness to the Torah should look like. 
that's that's what they're trying to carve out there. And uh, it's in that uh, world, the world of ancient Persia, if you would, um, that they are making this statement and teaching this, that Hillel said this. Um, but anyway, so there's another big historical blunder from a historian's perspective. You don't take something from the Babylon yeah, Talmud. from the 6th century. And say, oh, oh, it's well, it says Hillel said it. And then to try to go back and say, oh, well, it, Hillel must have lived, you know, obviously lived before Yeshua. Therefore, he said it first. Well, what they do in this movie is they have Yeshua citing almost verbatim uh, this passage from the, the Babylonian Talmud to two Pharisees. And then they laugh like they've never heard it. Um, so even if <laughs> that's the, the other part, even if even if we did have a text that Hillel had said that the Pharisees would have already known that, and Yeshua would not be instructing the Pharisees in that. So there's so many things. Okay, hang on. I want to I want to go back for a few seconds to the idea of you, you're talking. You talked about for a few seconds that they have this huge scene about this woman who's about to get stoned by, and this is taken out of the Luke, um, the passage. John. John. Oh, is it John? Well, yeah, but I think there is one ancient text that, that has, has it, it in Luke. In Luke, yeah. yeah. It's, um, okay, so, and this is the story of the woman who uh, is ca- caught in adultery. Uh, I wanted to play this because I think it's pertinent to the idea of what we were talking about, that why would you choose that clip? This is Dr. Daniel Wallace, who is, in my opinion, the leading New Testament manuscript scholar in the world today, if not one of of the New Testament uh, manuscript scholars of all time. Uh, he is... Uh, if there is a new man, New Testament manuscript, Dr. Wallace has in some way viewed or uh, done scholarly work on it in some way, shape, or form. This is what he has to say about the lady being stoned uh, and that passage. The majority text is, it's a, it really represents the majority of Byzantine manuscripts. Oh, wait, hang on just a sec. Now, I think I grabbed the wrong clip. Oh, well, okay, well. Well, here, what, maybe we can find, if you find that. Okay. Another point here is this. They... During Passover, during like the the arrest of Yeshua, you'd think they would latch on that this is a full moon, but in the night clips that I saw of the sky were just the starry night, so that wasn't like moonlight. You know, but aren't you be, nit, aren't you nitpicking a little bit here? Hey, you know, this is you might think that okay. But this well, is a I person got... who is purported to be bringing historical accuracy. Well, speaking of. Speaking of historical accuracy from Bill O'Reilly, here's him talking about the movie, uh, about the book, actually, not the movie, about the book. I got some on, on him talking about the movie. Here's one of him talking about the book killing Jesus. Listen to this. You go in great detail to describe Jesus's crucifixion in gory detail. Mm-hmm. Why? It's, it's important to understand the brutality of the day and, and, and what they did to this guy who did absolutely nothing. And, and life was cheap. According to O'Reilly, depictions like this are wrong, that Jesus was not nailed to the cross through his hands because his hands would not have held the weight of his body. So Jesus was really nailed through his wrists. And O'Reilly says there was usually a seat on the cross, but soldiers took it off this time because they wanted Jesus to die faster. Okay, let's hang on just a second right there. We still got plenty of clip left here. But where does he get that from? I mean, there's absolutely nothing in the text whatsoever that would point to that. Uh, so this is this is that right there is coming it's imagination. out. Imagination. It's imagination it's a, of Bill O'Reilly. Okay, let's keep going. They don't want the folks seeing him on there. 
they thought there was going to be big trouble if they saw him there. So okay, you know, uh, once again, and this also uh, I would I would definitely disagree with. It seems as though he was he was uh, crucified on the hill, on a hill, uh, coming into Jerusalem. Everyone, he was put up on the cross as a sign next to, next to other. Yeah, he was put up and hung on the cross as a sign to others not to defy the authority of not only Rome, but mainly of the Jewish uh, authority, in my opinion. Uh, I, I don't see where he gets that either. Anyway, let's keep going. Kill him and out of there. You include two quotes from Jesus on the cross, but not the most famous one. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Why not? We don't put in things that we don't think happened. How do you know? <laughs> because you couldn't say something like that audibly that people would hear. He, he, you die on a cross from su- um, being suffocated, that your lungs can't take in any more air. You can hardly breathe. We believe Jesus said that, but we don't believe he said it on the cross because nobody could have heard it. But, Bill, you know what people are going to say. The Bible says that Jesus said on the cross... Father, forgive them, but Bill O'Reilly says that's not true. So I should believe Bill. But you believe what you want. If you want to take the Bible literally, then that's your right to do that. But you use as your sources for this book the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but you pick and choose. Right, but that's not our only source. I mean, we use Muslim sources, we use Roman sources, we use Jewish sources. So is this the Gospel according to Bill? This is best available evidence according to Bill. We believe that the oral history in the Bible is largely accurate but we're not taking it literally. Okay, so he's not taking the Bible literally. That's number one. But then he'll take the Babylonian Talmud and, and that's think the that point. this is literal. And that's the point, is that he's taking something that's 600 years later and stitching it into yeah, some... Yeah, why take a Muslim source? That's even... Oh, that's Muslim seven, sources are, yeah, are seven, even later than the Talmud. 7th, 8th century. So I, I'm like, this is, this is poor... This is a demonstration of the poor method. And if, and if he's doing that here on an important topic, such as telling the story of the gospel, I can only imagine where he's mixed up in putting pictures together for politics or other pictures of history. You know? Well, he, uh, here's the other thing, is that O'Reilly was not very happy with the criticism that came uh, about this movie. In fact, now, Bill O'Reilly, once again, was an executive producer. All he did was uh, yes, write a check. Uh, so he didn't have any say in this movie or how it was made or anything like that. Um, however, when the reviews came out and they were very not, uh, very poor, um, he was he was a little bit agitated by it. Listen to what he, uh, what uh, this has now. Now, granted, I took this clip. This is not in your show notes either, uh, and the reason why is because I found it about twenty minutes before we went on the air, and the show notes already went out. This clip I found by putting in uh, "Killing Jesus Reviews" into YouTube. This uh, clip of a show, they actually spliced together Bill O'Reilly discussing different reviews. Um, so, yeah, anyway, here you go. Now, this is very bad news for the secular progressive movement, which sees Christian expositions as a threat to their political agenda. Opposition to abortion, gay marriage, legalized narcotics, and libertine behavior in general often comes from faith based organizations and citizens. So any embrace of Christian tradition is a danger to the agenda of the left. The far left guardian is a good example. Quote, 
These specials usually put O'Reilly's patented conservative slant on retellings of history, something that wouldn't really sit well with Christians. The book, Killing Jesus, fell into this trap, presenting salacious detail about Christ's death and a Tea Party version of the Son of God. Gilbert sees the entertainment industry through his uber left-wing prism. Quote, I admit I don't like watching or listening to O'Reilly. I prefer my blowhards in a comic context. Killing Jesus is a shallow telling of Jesus' story. Of course it is. The New York Times even denigrated Killing Jesus, the movie, by directing its readers to a critic who says the Gospels in the Bible are, quote, myths and legend, unquote. I mean, really? How insulting is that? The only myth in play here is that the New York Times is an objective source of information. Okay, two things. First of all, <laughs> here... <laughs> that might be true, too. That might be true, too. Uh, first of all, and Adam uh, reminds us that Bill O'Reilly is a Catholic. And they're... Okay, fair enough. Uh, that just shows that his, his view of history is already skewed. Uh, Catholicism believes that the popes go all the way back to, the, to, to Yeshua himself. This is obviously not true. Uh, we know that just from history itself. Uh, anyway, uh, the point is is that uh, I don't think that Bill should be getting upset about this movie, seeing as though he really didn't have anything to do with it. Uh, not only that, but in, in general, from what you've said, Rob, from the very little that I've seen, uh, it seems to me that uh, O'Reilly has certainly uh, fudged on the truth when it comes to uh, historical accuracy. Here's the thing. One last comment before we ship movies. Is it I think he believes he's right. Oh, he definitely That's does. That's the thing. I, I, don't, I don't think he's thinking, oh, I'm just going to do this to sell it. I think he really... Oh, he really he believes really, it. it. He's like no different than any of these guys who get like the Blood Moon guys or whatever. Did he or put, whatever. They get a little bit of information. They have enough of a following already that are like urging him on. You know, and then they start pushing this idea because it has... It, kind of has a sizzle about it and they don't have that honestly i think there's a, a I, it's not me to judge but it seems like there's just a deep fear of god that's missing did uh did he in, include the jews walking into a cave story in the in the movie <laughs> that would have kicked it over the edge <laughs> okay no. let's let's shift gears shift here gear. uh no well, well before we do that what would you give the movie a five out of five stars what should people watch it in terms of costumes and uh, production sets and everything like that, yeah. I think it's great. So just be just be a little bit weary. In terms of the script, I'd give it a two out of five. Wow. Okay. Uh, if that, and in terms of historical uh, biblical accuracy, I maybe one star. Wow. Star. Yeah. But in terms of of the, you know, they 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 had the budget to. Um, uh, you know, create some sets. You wonder if some of these Bible movies used to recycle the same sets. The editing was, I, I give it a two out of five on editing too. Yeah, but. Okay. Um, so the movie that I uh, decided to watch was called Patterns. We're going to pull this up here. Patterns of Evidence. evidence uh, which can be viewed now on... Um, on Netflix. <clears throat> Pardon me. 
So right from the very beginning, I'll tell you this. Uh, I thought to myself, okay, I didn't know what to expect going into this movie at all. Obviously, we expect that it's going to have something to do with the Exodus. I thought it was going to be from a very liberal point of view, and they were going to basically say, no, there's absolutely no evidence for the Exodus. On the contrary, actually, what it really was was this filmmaker named Timothy Mahoney. Mr. Mahoney is a filmmaker. He decided to go ahead and he's a Christian. Uh, He got very uh, uh, discouraged when he was told that there was no evidence whatsoever for an exodus in the 1200s BCE. Okay. Now, uh, if you are unaware, we've talked about this kind of thing before. Wonderful scholars such as Kenneth Kitchen place the exodus in the 1200s. Okay, and they do this for a specific reason. Now, I will admit this this uh, movie does tend to bring up a lot of the different uh, timelines and whatnot. I felt for most of the movie they were actually trying to do justice to both sides of the story: those who are opposed to a historical exodus, and those who are actually uh, in favor of a historical exodus. This this gentleman, uh, uh, Timothy Mahoney. As a filmmaker, he's going through trying to uh, to basically see prove that there is evidence for the Exodus. Now he missed some of the key uh, pieces of evidence, in my opinion. Uh, there are hier- hieroglyphs, uh, the destruction of man uh, narrative that is uh, given by um, uh, by Egyptian sources, not by uh, Jewish sources. Other things like this, he tend to, he he seemed to uh, leave out. Um, the whole time, okay. So it starts out, and the very first one of the very first people that you will see in this movie is actually Michael Medved. Michael Medved is a Jew, an Orthodox Jew here in Seattle, Washington. He uh, is the host of a nationally syndicated, and I think one of the top nationally syndicated talk shows in uh, the United States, the Michael Medved Show, uh, and uh, Medved for certain is a historian. Uh, if you've ever listened to any of Medved's stories uh, on, he, he does shows uh, when he's going to be out of the out of town or when it's a Jewish festival, uh, a Jewish holiday. Uh, he will do pre-recorded shows, and what those are are historical shows. He's done some on Lincoln, he's done some on the Civil War, he's done some on on different topics. They are absolutely ex- excellent, um, and and honestly, I can't I can't say enough about them. Uh, if you have a chance to listen to them, I highly recommend them, and uh, they're worth buying as well, to be honest with you, uh, not to plug somebody else's radio show. But uh, Michael Medved certainly is a historian and, uh, and has his facts straight and is honest with, with the facts a lot of the time. Uh, I, I would say the majority of the time he is very honest with the facts and lets his audience know about the hard truths. Uh, unlike Bill O'Reilly. Um, so when it started out with Medved, I thought, oh, this might actually be really good. There were some excellent scholars uh, that he that he uh, interviewed. Kenneth Kitchen was not a part of this, and I, I think I know why. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Uh, there were some excellent scholars. And then uh, he started using one specific scholar uh, as a main interviewee. That scholar is David Roll. Uh, I am very aware of who David Roll is, but I would assume that most of the audience watching this show, uh, watching this movie, does not who, know who David Roll is. We'll talk about who David Roll is 
in a few minutes. So uh, basically what he starts to do, uh, what this movie maker does, and I should just say, uh, just in terms of technically the movie, uh, as a person who edits video, I'm not a good video editor, but I will say this. Even I could tell that uh, a lot of B-roll was used in terms of, they, you know, they did interviews. They went back and, and tried to shoot uh, this movie maker uh, doing, <laughs> like, reactions to what the person's saying. You can kind of tell that it's not actually while he's sitting there with the like people. Staged. Yeah, it's totally staged. And, he's, and it's just very bad kind of acting like oh you know just so i mean the cinematography is done well but you can just tell that it's it's kind of it's very edited together uh he got his you know he's a movie maker and you can kind of tell that he tried to use some tricks that didn't work too well uh, so one of the first things that he tries to do is try to establish that the idea that an exodus in the 1250s is probably not accurate okay and uh, so he discusses the idea of uh, the, saying that they built the city of Ramses. And this is why uh, so many scholars believe that uh, the Exodus was in 1250s, because essentially, in one way or another, the Bible says that that was so. However, he got this point right, and I really enjoyed that he got this point right. This is how he explains that point. I agree with him. Tell me, who is Manfred B. Tech? Manfred Bietek is probably one of the greatest archaeologists alive today. And he's dug at one of the most important sites in the Eastern Delta, a city called Avaris, which is in the land of Goshen, which the Bible calls it. And I believe this is the place where Joseph and his brethren lived. Well, I went to see Manfred Bietek. Right. And that's not what he said. He said there's no evidence of this at the time of Ramesses. Exactly right. Most scholars will say if you look at the city of Ramesses, there are no Asiatics there. There are no Western Asiatics living at that particular city. But dig down a bit, a little bit deeper, and you do find a city full of Asiatics. Yeah, but the Bible says it happened at the time of Ramesses. Mm-hmm. What are you saying? I'm saying that this particular mention of the city of Ramses, the building of Ramses, is what we call an anachronism. It's something that's been added into the text later by an editor. Mm -hmm. So what the editor is basically saying is, this is the place where the Israelites built the store city, and we know it today as Ramses. Well, in the ancient times, it was called Avaris. Okay, so, uh, so the people would know the area, the region. The people of the Bible would have known where Ramesses was and where, therefore, their ancestors actually built the city. Okay, even in this clip, you can hear the sound editing has shifted. So uh, even though he might be a filmmaker, he's not a Hollywood filmmaker because you could tell that the sound editing was different. Anyway, not, not the point. Uh, he's right about this. In fact, there's updating of name places throughout the, the Tanakh in general. Uh, and and this happens quite often. And so that's I think he's absolutely right. By the way, the guy with the English accent who uh, who uh, Timothy uh, what did I uh, Mahoney Timothy Mahoney is talking to right there is in fact David Roll. Now I'm going to give you some spoiler alerts here on uh, who David Roll is and 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 why I was skeptical. So he's bringing up all these great wonderful historical uh, ideas and and they just sound too good to be true. And so anytime something sounds too good to be true. I often think it is too good to be true. Go ahead, Rob. So say, I guarantee it, Caleb. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, so uh, I, I just have a hard time when, some, when, when things are just like, wow, man, this fits so well. I have a hard time uh, believing things like that. Well, it clicked with me who Roll was. In fact, I've done research on Roll. Roll has put together what is called the new chronology. Okay, and actually, I started I started looking at Roll a little bit uh, while the in the middle of the film, and I and as soon as I realized who he was, I thought, you know what, 
his agenda has got to be in this somewhere because he is the main interviewee. David Roll has do, done what's called the new chronology uh, when it comes to the, the Exodus. What he is trying to do is he is trying to move Egyptian history up 350 years. Up from... Okay, so let's say that uh, Amenhotep II, okay, is a pharaoh. Uh, Let's say that he, according to Kenneth Kitchen and every other Egyptologist around today, uh, let's say that they put him, uh, the start of his reign at 1492, okay? That's when everyone puts it. Uh, What Roll wants to do is that he wants to then bring it to... Uh, let's see here, uh, eleven forty two. He wants to say that Amenhotep II didn't reign in the fourteen hundreds in the fourteen ninety two, but that he started uh, uh, reigning in eleven forty two. Okay, so he moves everything up. Wow, three hundred and fifty years. Okay. Okay. There are major problems with this. And although it's subtle, although it's subtle, what they try to do, I can tell that this is kind of a role agenda because at the very end of the movie, in the last six minutes of the movie, what they do is they've now brought it around so they've shown you all this evidence that's really, really, really convincing. Okay, You're on board with them. You've bought into role as a great scholar. You've bought into all these things. And in the very last six minutes, they really hit you with the agenda of the entire movie, which is role's agenda to basically tell you that the new chronology that he's proposing is actually true. I don't feel like this movie is geared to try to convince people who aren't believers of the Bible that the Exodus actually happened. If you don't believe that the Exodus actually happened, you're still not going to believe it at the end of this movie. However, if you are, if you do believe that the Exodus has happened, you now will have bought into Roll's idea of moving the entire dynasties up 350 years. There's problems with this, okay? And well, he doesn't offer an an opposing view. Is that why you're saying he does? Well, not- and, and actually, and actually he does kind of, they do kind of give you an opposing view. So they have a couple of really good scholars in there. For instance, at the end, they tell you that, uh, this scholar, Bryant G Wood, who is an excellent scholar. And I'm going to read you. Uh, I, I posted in the show notes, the beginning of a article by, that's in this, uh, this month's issue of Bible and speed. And it's by Bryant Wood. He was in this, he was in this movie. He was interviewed in this movie. At the end of the movie, they, they say there's two, you know, they show the, they reshow the scholars that were in the movie. They say these, these scholars believe that, uh, the Exodus was in 14, uh, you know, 46, uh, but they believe that the, the pharaohs don't have to shift to do that. And then they, then they, t- they then they bring you to roll and this other scholar who, uh, are obviously buddy, buddy who they've spent the most time looking at throughout the entire movie. And they say, and roll and this guy also believe that it should be in 1446, but they believe that, uh, you should, we should bring all of the chronology of the pharaohs up 350 years. To do so by this point in the movie, you've unless you know better, you've bought into this idea that Roll is this amazing scholar and every and is highly, uh, you know, highly esteemed within the the archaeological world, and that he's this British guy who knows everything. You know, he's got this great British accent and everything. 
And the truth uh, actually is not th- that, okay? I'm going to read you an article now. It, this is somewhat, uh, it's not that long, honestly. This is uh, in uh, Bible and Spade again. It's called Pharaohs and Kings Confused, David Roll's New Chronology. This is by a gentleman named Gary Byers. Over the past two years, British historian David Roll has captured the imagination of Bible students and, and at the same time created quite a stir among scholars. Now, I should tell you this, that David Roll had uh, a, a video that he put out in 1995. And this video, I've seen it. It's also somewhat convincing until you read the other side of the story. So he only gives you one side of the story in this video. Okay, And to me, what it feels like is that didn't really do as well as he wanted it to. So this is his like second attempt at trying to convince the masses. Okay, Through his book, Pharaohs and the Kings, A Biblical Quest, which was done in 1995, and a video by the same name, Roll has attempted to completely overhaul ancient Near Eastern chronology. His purpose is to tie together biblical personages and events to similar-sounding references in ancient historical records. To bolster his case, he quotes a number of excerpts in their respective fields of Egypt, uh, Egyptian, Mesopotamian, Assyrian, and Israelite history. While the scope of his work is vast and hinges on a number of technical issues, it can be summarized as follows. Roll's proposed and realignment of ancient Near Eastern chronologies, shifting dates up to 350 years, his work attempts to fill the gaps we presently have in ancient chronologies allowing the identification of biblical personages with ancient representations known from other sources. The material role focuses on is quite technical, okay, and he goes through some of these things. Admittedly, Roll's idea is quite appealing to those frustrated by the lack of connection between biblical and secular history. Conservatives want to tie biblical events to ancient history, and the connections he makes sound reasonable and offer some interesting possibilities. Due to the technical nature of his work, however, few are capable of responding authoritative, authoritatively. Consequently, Consequently, his work has received widespread media attention and has become popular among conservatives, but all is not well in Rollland. One of the ex- uh, experts who appeared in Roll's videos is Egyptologi- Egyptologist Dr. Kenneth Kitchen, who, by the way, is like one of the leading authorities on all things Egypt. Okay, A con- conservative evangelical scholar. That's actually not true. Kenneth Kitchen has said he's not an evangelical. He just looks at the facts. Kitchen says he was interviewed in his Liverpool, England home by Roll on May 17, 1995 for seven hours. Kitchen only appears in Roll's three video series for a total of about three minutes. Professor and of Egyptology at the University of Liverpool, Kitchen was not at all happy with Roll's finished product. Sour, sour, sour grapes? Probably not. Angry that he did not get more airtime? I doubt it. Kitchen later said that he had great reservation about giving the interview because he understood Roll's arguments all too well. Quote, the easy way out, he said, was simply to say, you are 98% rubbish, go away, which would be academically justified. But for all experts to respond that way would allow Roll to go forward with no detractors. So Kitchen agreed to the interview. According to Kitchen, most of the interview was spent with Kitchen demonstrating to Roll why his theories are wrong and do not work. In retrospect, Kitchen said he later realized that Roll was only looking for sound bites, not new information. Quote, it is clear now that he had most of his filming already in the can by, the, by, by May 17th and his book virtually ready for press. In particular, Kitchen said he demonstrated evidence which directly contradicted Roll's views. 
With Roll's main focus on Egyptian chronology, Kitchen's specialty, <clears throat> he provided Roll with primary evidence from several vital genealogies of the 21st and 22nd uh, Egyptian dynasties. In addition, he presented continuous lines of high priests for Amun the, uh, in Thebes and Ptah in Memphis, going through both dynasties. Kitchen said Roll communicated he was unaware of this material. Furthermore, Kitchen answered Roll's two great anomalies in Egyptian chronology, the cache of royal uh, reburial near Deir el-Bari and the lack of Apis bull burials for the 21st dynasties. Finally, Kitchen provided parallels in the Assyrian king list, the Assyrian epitaph, uh, I don't even know what that word is, list, and the Babylonian king list, with cross-links illustrated by the synchronous history and chronicles of additional links to New England, uh, uh, New Kingdom, Egypt, and Haiti, plus markers showing which kings of Assyria successfully built in the national shrine at Asher also bolstered Kitchen's case. And finally... This is the last thing I'll read. As a coupe de gras, Kitchen brought out what he called one totally damning little text. From Der el Medina in West Thebes, it precisely dated the Nile inundation at a specific time, an occurrence which takes place only once every 1,460 years. As far as Kitchen is concerned, Roll's proposed corrections of ancient Near Eastern chronology was dead in the water. By the way, and this is, I mean, so this Dead in the water. Yeah, this, <laughs> yeah, this, uh, this continues to. I mean, this, this continues on. Uh, but the reason that that is uh, uh, the Nile inundation is uh, is important is because they can date it to a specific uh, pharaoh. Right. Uh, so if it only happened, if he can, if he can pinpoint when it happened, uh, and it happened during a specific pharaoh. Where, what does that do for Roll? Uh, well, it shatters his, his theory. Okay, so I disagree with Kenneth Kitchen that the Exodus was in the 1200s. I actually agree with Roll in the idea that the, uh, that the Exodus happened sometime in the 1400s. This, uh, the, the scholar that I mentioned earlier, Wood, who was also in this, uh, in this documentary, he places it in 1446. I think that that's definitely a possibility. Uh, I think it could have been a little bit earlier than that, maybe in the uh, 1475 to 1465 uh, uh, area, something like that. Okay. So, uh, besides that little, so at the the last six minutes is what really ticked me off when I realized that this was basically a commercial for the new chronology of of role. Okay. However. There were some very interesting things that were brought up. For instance, the Joseph statue. Now, we're going to talk about Roll's chronology because I think he's off. I think he's wrong. Uh, but we're going to talk about that in connection with the Joseph statue. What is the Joseph statue? Let me play you a clip. Now, this Avaris is the city which lies under the biblical Ramesses. Ramesses of the New Kingdom. Avaris of the Middle Kingdom, the 13th Dynasty. It lies underneath the city that's mentioned in the Bible. So when Betak digs up a huge population of Semitic-speaking peoples with Semitic culture, living in the city of Avaris for several hundred years, and then, at the end of the period, these Semites all leave, depart with their belongings and abandon the city, whatever Manfred says, that, to me, sounds awfully like the Israelites. So- okay, hang on just a second. I want to I stop this and just say, he's talking about the Hyksos. 
Now, there's been extensive work done on the Hyksos and what they are. It is definitely a Semitic people that that uh, lived within Egypt, okay? And um, most biblical scholars say that it was not Israel. It wasn't, it wasn't the Israelites who came out in the Exodus. There's reasons for that. Number one, it doesn't fit the, the timelines, okay? We're going to talk about that in a few seconds. Um, and so what, what Roll is going to say is that the Hyksos actually were Israel. Now, there's multiple reasons why, why the Hyksos, uh, why people believe that there was a Semitic culture that lived within Egypt before and possibly after, but before uh, the, the exodus from Egypt. Okay? So that's what they're talking about. What is the connection with Joseph out of Iris? Well, after this house of Jacob, if we can call it that, is built, eventually it's, it's flattened. And on top of it, an Egyptian palace is constructed, Egyptian architecture this time. However, the occupant was not Egyptian. The palace had courtyards, colonnades, audience chambers. There was even a robing room. It obviously belonged to some high official of state who was very, very important to that state. Because when somebody gets a palace like this given to them, it means they're being honored for what they've done for the state. Now in the garden behind the palace, the archeologists found 12 main graves with memorial chapels on top of them. You have 12 we graves? We have 12 graves. And why would that be significant? Well, think about it. How many sons did Jacob have? Yeah, How many tribes were there? Twelve tribes. Exactly. And what's also amazing is the palace had a facade, a portico, with twelve pillars. Mm-hmm. So you've got twelve sons, twelve tribes, twelve pillars, and twelve tombs. Interesting. Yeah. Is that all coincidence? Now, one of these twelve graves was very special because it was a pyramid tomb. This in itself is extraordinary, because only pharaohs and queens had pyramid tombs at this time. Yet the person buried in this tomb was not a king. Even so, he was honored with a king's burial. And inside the chapel of the tomb was a statue. What we know from the statue is that this man had red hair. He had pale yellow skin, which is how Egyptians depict northerners. He had a throw stick across his shoulder, a unique symbol of office made for this Asiatic official living in the land of Goshen. And on the back of his shoulder, we see the faintest remains of paint, colored stripes from a multicolored coat. And that matches exactly with the story of Joseph. Okay, so uh, this sounds fantastic, doesn't it? Just sounds amazing. And so I thought to myself, okay, you can't trust Roll as a scholar. Now, not that everything he said, not that everything that Roll says is is untrue, but as a scholar within Egyptology, he's somewhat discounted himself as a legitimate scholar. And the reason why is because he's kind of brought up this new chronology, which is certainly uh, uh, rejected by pretty much everybody. Okay, so what do we do with this with this uh, with this palace at Avaris? Well, I started doing some some digging. And actually, there's a lot of people who uh, are saying basically uh, the same kind of things about uh, Avaris and about the Hyksos that would have lived there and about this palace. In fact, most of the remains of this, uh, of this town have not been excavated yet. It turned into a very large town at one point. Um, this is what I did find, and this was simply to date uh, this, this palace and to date 
some other things, okay, uh, about about Avaris. So this is from the Encyclopedia of the Archaeolo- Archaeology of Ancient Egypt, page 779. So this is a, a legitimate book and, uh, and uh, encyclopedia. Uh, places this settlement in the it places this settlement in the twelfth dynasty of Egypt somewhere around two thousand BCE and actually I gave it a couple extra years it's actually like nineteen ninety one BCE okay quote the settlement was probably founded during the first intermediary period by one of the Heracleopolitan kings named Keti circa 2040 BC as a royal estate. The first king of the 12th dynasty, Amenemot I, I'm butchering that, who was very active in settlement politics, reestablished the site as a crown estate. Then later on, uh, this quote goes on, the 12th dynasty town is situated to the southeast of, the, of a deviation of the Poluzak branch of the Nile. Now this is interesting. Uh, I'll end this quote, and except for a large villa-like building is mostly unexplored. This is interesting because the uh, deviation from the Nile River is man-made. And it dates to the same time. What what uh, Roll and other scholars within this documentary, and there are some good scholars in this documentary, what they are going to try to argue is that this was actually built by Joseph in preparation for the seven years of famine. I'm not saying it's a slam dunk by any stretch of the imagination. However, I do think that it's an interesting assertion. Now, people are going to, a lot of scholars are going to say, no, that's impossible because it's too early. Okay. Um, I'm going to go on with a couple of clips here, but uh, then I'm also going to try, I should probably. Can I comment? Yeah, of course. I. This is, you know, I, I did study the chronology back probably 15 years ago. So this has not been an area of focus for me. So um, I'm glad that you're passionate about this, Caleb. But one thing that does stick out to me is this last picture of that he, he describes of the, is it like a a statue? Yes. Okay. And it says that there's faint remains of a paint and he associates that with multicolored coat and just a, a comment on there, well, two really. One is in Exodus, it's, or, or Genesis, it's, uh, I think, Genesis 37, katonat panim, or pasim, katonat pasim. It doesn't mean multicolored coat. It means coat that is long, like it, it, it's very, it's long-sleeved. That's what it means. So it's a coat that a person wouldn't, it's a royal coat, it wouldn't, uh, something that someone wouldn't be able to work in. You wouldn't do physical labor in because it's a kind of a, a, a really special coat, but nothing in the text is this uh, multicolored. Not only that, this coat wouldn't have even been part of of Joseph's life in Egypt because the brothers kept it and painted it in blood, and and it was given to his father. So that that coat never went to Egypt. Um, if it would have been Egyptian, if there's any paint, if let, let's just say this is a statue of Joseph, and I'm not saying I believe that. Then it's gonna look. It's gonna be reflected in, in Egyptian garb. It's not gonna be. Oh, and th- we're gonna paint him with this coat that his father had given him, and it's this multicolored, uh, technicolor dream coat or whatever. <laughs> uh, so I think that the fact that they're adding that is is trying to add a little bit of sensationalism that to me is over the top. I agree with you. I agree with you completely. However, 
this is the thing that uh, that I'm finding interesting is that this this city is uh, is built next to this diversion of the Nile, okay, and the dating and the dating of this city is interesting to me as well, and I'll tell you why in a few minutes. And also the idea that this was clearly a Semitic settlement. All these things are very interesting to me, okay. That it wasn't an Egyptian settlement; it was a it was a Semitic uh, settlement. Okay, uh, whether or not the the uh, the palace that uh, they have uncovered is it significant that there's twelve shrines, as it were, or burials uh, with with shrines on top? I don't know. I don't know if I believe that or not, or you know if I buy into the idea and twelve pillars. Once again, uh, you know this could be uh, this could be many different things. Coincidence is one of them. Maybe it ha- it related to something else, like Egyptian gods. Uh, who knows? Maybe it was a family, a royal family that lived there. I I don't know. I'm not saying that it is or it isn't. I'm just saying you know there are some interesting things about this. Okay, so uh, let's move on. This is a clip from a uh, a uh, scholar that they have that they interview. His name is Ailing. Mahoney went to see Professor Charles Ayling, an Egyptologist who has also investigated the events of the Exodus and its connection to Egypt. Would it be unusual for a tomb to have a statue? No. It's unusual to have one this large. This would be uh, probably twice uh, the size of a normal human being. What does that tell you when when the statue's larger? That it's a very important person. Now, of course, this is not a pharaoh's uh, tomb or palace, but the man who lived there, you can identify his nationality by looking at the fragments of the statue. Uh, Three things, the hairstyle he has, which we often call the mushroom hairstyle, Mm -hmm. and then secondly, the weapon he carries over his shoulder called a throw stick, which we would associate with like an Australian boomerang, and then the coloration of the skin. The skin is yellow. All those things indicate that this would have been a Syro-Palestinian. Dr. Ayling, do you think this is Joseph? Either it is Joseph or it's somebody that has a career remarkably the same as Joseph did. It's just an, an incredible thing to, to find this at this uh, time period. Okay. Uh, I don't know who Ayling is, to be honest with you. The, the guy could be a dynamite scholar. He could be a total hack. I, I don't know. Um, and so, once again, I'm very skeptical, you know, it, it, you know, and uh, with Roll interviewing Kitchen for seven hours and only using three minutes of his clip, who knows how much this has been edited? I mean, you can already tell. Uh, you know, you can already tell that he's he's highly edited uh, some of these interviews. You can tell just by his his sound clips. He he hasn't normalized his his sound. Uh, if you don't know what that is, it it's base it's one oh one. You know, it's it's editing one oh one. You normalize your sound clips and try to get them all to sound the same. He hasn't done that, okay? Or he did and he didn't do it well. One of the two. Or he just didn't, you know, or when he was re-recording, it was in just such a different environment, you know, when he was recording the clips that he's splicing in. Um, okay. So, um, I have another clip, but I'm actually going to pass that one up. Um, and I'm going to go to the moving of the timeline. And then the last thing I'm going to talk about is this last picture that he gives. And, and after that, we'll be done. But uh, So we're, we're getting close to the end of this. But uh, 
So at the end, <clears throat> he has this timeline. It looks like a uh, it looks like a a wall, okay. And at the top is the twelve twenty or the twelve fifty or whatever uh, Exodus idea, okay. And he shows from when the when the Exodus or when the uh, the nation of Israel would have uh, been in in Egypt, and that part's in green. And then in yellow would be while they're in slavery. That part's in yellow. And then uh, the Exodus is this red part, okay. Uh, the plagues and 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 the Exodus is in this red part, and he has that all ending at 1250. So that's the traditional view. And then uh, under at the bottom of this wall, you have all these different dates and these huge columns for every thousand years. So at the 1450 mark, he has the end, uh, you know, he has this uh, red part ending and that going back. And then for some reason, uh, because of all this stuff that's going on with the Hyksos and, and the statue of Joseph, supposedly, he has another timeline that's back 250 years from that or 350 years from that okay and so uh and so basically what he's going to do now is use rolls model and say yeah the the exodus should have been in 1440 but all these dynasties should be uh, moved up 250 to 350 years okay here's the clip researchers like roland bimson believe the main problem lies in these lesser known dark periods of egypt's past they think scholars have miscalculated their links, causing distortions in the dates for everything before them. The biggest suspect is this very long third dark period, which new information suggests has been overinflated by centuries. New information has been uh, new information. No, uh, this Wait is new information has been overinflated for centuries. Yeah. So basically, new information you, is if it's not if it's centuries old, if it's been in, overinflated. No, what they're saying is is that the, the traditional view of this dark, this third dark age, okay, which is actually right around the 1000 BCE time, has been overinflated for centuries is what they're saying. Oh, okay. by new evidence they they they're realizing this. But once again, Kenneth Kitchen has basically, you know, even if Kevin Kitchen Kenneth Kitchen is wrong about the idea of the of uh Israel coming out in the 1200s, certainly he agrees for the most part i mean it shifts a couple of you know maybe 50 years this way or that but every single scholar egyptian scholar uh pretty much agrees give or take 50 years on the dynasties and where they're to be placed and for good reason the evidence clearly points to it so you have roll this guy is really trying to push that these dynasties should be moved 350 years it just doesn't work okay let's keep going with this clip if it were reduced, the history of Egypt would need to move forward in time. For many years, I was intimidated by the giant of Egypt's dating. But what made me take a second look was when I learned that it's been necessary to insert gaps into the histories of all the surrounding civilizations in order to match the dating of Egypt's third dark period. Yet the archaeology of these cultures does not seem to support such gaps. Something was wrong. What might history look like if the dark periods were adjusted the way that some scholars believe the evidence demands? So now he's going to move it's this. Changing. It's the Bible timeline, because that's not affected by it. If you're changing the Egyptian timeline, you're moving it against the Bible timeline. So all of a sudden, things that were not in the right time period between the two are suddenly lining up in a different way. The exciting bit because that's when we suddenly start to find evidence for the biblical story. It's startling to think how significant this could be because chronology 
the dates assigned to these events, is the thing being used to convince the world that the Bible is just a fairy tale. Okay, so it sounds extraordinary, right? They found the answers. They found the answers to all the problems. And you know what? To be honest with you, they have some really good scholars in there. Wood is one of them. In fact, when he gets into the idea of Jericho and when Jericho was sacked and, and the archaeology of Jericho, Wood is one of his main scholars there that he, that he relies on. I actually appreciate Wood's uh, take on it. I agree with Wood on his take of Jericho being sacked at a specific date. Um, some of the miscalculations that were made by uh, by the archaeologists back in the 50s and, and uh, so on and so forth. Hang on just a second. I'm trying to find... Okay, so what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to post... Roll timeline. Okay. So I'm posting on our Facebook page as we speak. I'm uh, I'm posting a picture. This picture, hopefully, if it'll ever upload, uh, this picture basically is a picture of their timeline. The timeline, um, so this is actually a screenshot of my screen, Patterns of Evidence of the Exodus. So now they've moved this back timeline up, and uh, this back timeline has become... Uh, equal with the new timeline. Okay, so here's the issue. They have the Exodus at 1440. I don't know if everybody's looking at this with me, but they have the Exodus at 1440. They have Israel dwelling with uh, in Egypt from 1650. That's only 200 years. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't Israel in Egypt for 430 years, 400 to 430 years. So even if we start reckoning, if we start reckoning uh, uh, Israel being in Egypt from the time that Abraham comes down with his sons to dwell with Joseph, if we... Not, Ab- not Abraham. I'm sorry, uh, Jacob... Com- thank you. Jacob coming down to dwell with his sons uh, with Joseph in Egypt during the famine. Okay, if we date that, if we start that as the beginning of the 400 years that they were in Egypt and we put the Exodus at, say, 1450, what do you have? 1900, 1950, right? Which is exactly the same amount of time. That's exactly when the settlement is given that they say the Joseph statue's in. Whether or not that's... uh, Avaris. Avaris. So that... I don't understand why in the world, like, it makes zero sense to me why you'd have to move the timeline up. Why why in the world has Roll given uh, Israel 200 years in Egypt instead of 400, as the scriptures tells us? Am I missing it? I don't know, Kim. That's a good question. Anyway, I guess the point is this. Although the, uh, the doc, my movie review in, in total is this. There is some sensational claims in this movie. Whether or not they're true or not really needs to be investigated. Uh, I can't take it as truth, 100%. I do think that there are good scholars in this documentary. And I also believe that uh, a date of somewhere around 1450 is a correct date for the Exodus. However, Roll's idea that we need to move the timeline of the pharaohs is absolutely asinine and has been clearly debunked by good scholars. Um, 
However, I do think that this movie is probably worth watching just to see some of the archaeological evidence uh, for the sacking of Jericho, which uh, is presented by some very good scholars. It should be noted, whoever watches this movie, though, it should be noted that Roll is not a scholar who needs to be who should be trusted 100%. And in terms of cinematography and just script uh, and basic video editing, um, I wonder how how much of the interviews are spot on uh it seems as though they left out parts it's quite obvious and they do that with you know everything so the question is what parts did they leave out from from some of the great scholars that they do have um and also michael medved while he is in the beginning and has a cameo in the middle uh really doesn't give any opinion or any history whatsoever which is unfortunate because uh, i would think that such a juggernaut historian like uh, michael medved would be someone who could have been utilized uh, specifically in a documentary such as this. I would give it three stars, three out of five. So looking back at both these, we see two different, uh, very relatively well-financed. Maybe the the Killing Jesus had maybe a little more backing yes. power-wise. Yes. But uh, basically two situations where, well, of course, Killing Jesus is in, told in a narrative uh, context, whereas... Uh, this one is the one that has the narrator. I think it was it's it's uh, the guy who played Hercules. I think is the narrator, but it's like Talking Heads with some graphics, um, reenactments, Talking Heads, right? That that kind of thing on site at at different archaeological points, and so the, the the movies are not the same genre. However, they both the producers on both ends have a bunch of stuff on the table. They're going to select specific things according to the story they want to get across. And that's, the, that's what governs those decisions of what, what clips are going to keep, like you were talking about, Caleb. But, you know, if we, if we talk to Dr. Hoffmeyer or Dr. Kitchen or uh, Michael Medved today about their thoughts about the movie as a whole relative to their perspective, who knows? They might say, yeah, they... They butchered it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, they might have eliminated some of the, my most important points, you know. So we really don't know. But in any case, we're all, uh, these are selections that are made by the producers for, for the end product. That's right. And any of these uh, individual people that are consulted don't have a, a say when it comes to the final chopping block in the, in the editing room. And, um, but with the Bill O'Reilly, Bill you know, Specifically, all you know, being touted as historical accuracy, uh, the use of the Talmud and Muslim <laughs> sources, as he said in that interview, that's uh, it's craziness. I, I, I don't understand. Um, I guess, I guess, here's the end point when you're gonna watch a movie. You got to take everything with a grain of salt, yeah. yeah uh, you know, make sure that you're uh. You're <laughs> uh, not just believing, believing sensational claims uh, that are given in in any movie, uh, no matter what, even if it seems like it's on point, and even if they present people as being dynamite scholars. Send us emails, cheg at torahresource.com, or vanhoff at torahresource.com. Be a part of the conversation, trradio.com, get into the chat room, and all that kind of great stuff. Hey, we had fun, and we hope that you had fun. Join us next week. We will do the exact same thing, and that is to try to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah. Yeshua, the Messiah.